All right, everyone, welcome to A Thousand Cuts. This is a BSA podcast. I am your host, uh, Demetrius, here with my comrades and co-hosts, Glenn and Chanel. And uh, we're excited to be here with y'all, man. This is the first episode. Uh, Glenn Chanel, say what's up to the folks. Tell everybody how y'all doing. Howdy, people. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? All right. All right. Well, we're glad to be here with y'all. Like we like we said before, uh, this is A Thousand Cuts. We are a Black Socialist podcast. Um, this is the first episode. I know we uh, the introductory episode that we did, uh, hopefully that garnered interest for you guys. I mean, if you're listening, obviously you are interested, but uh, we're, we're glad to be here with y'all with the first episode. We decided to get it started after months of months of uh, preparation and stuff like that. So first, we just wanted to just talk a little bit about, you know, who we are and what we represent and how we connect to BSA as an organization. Chanel, would you like to start off with, um, you know, how you how you got connected to BSA and, you know, why it resonated with your uh, politics? All right. So my connection with BSA happened via Twitter, I think, as a lot of us and being able to find a page, a group, other melanated people who are advocating for something different, right? And not just something different, but something that can strongly counter what we are experiencing um, in terms of the dual power piece. But yeah, Twitter. Twitter connected us and I made it my business to join and and be involved and because my heart's tied to the mission so um i am all for liberation of black people um for you know dismantling that which obviously is not working any longer and i i feel like bsa is a great place and space to to do that with like-minded people awesome awesome glenn what about yourself similar fashion you know discovery bsa through social media platform, Twitter, and it's, you know, the website they have, what do we have? <laughs> to me, it was actually in-person Symbiosis, which is a partner organization, uh, held the, the Congress of Municipal Movements here in Detroit, and I attended that. And so through attending that, I met some folks from Cooperation Jackson, from, you know, Black Socialists in America, Symbiosis and other orgs. And yeah, I pretty much joined there after several days at the Congress where we held several meetings and breakout groups and stuff and really began to set the groundwork for this National Solidarity Economy Initiative. Yeah, that was my initial involvement and how I got to become a member and a part of this organization. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, my my introduction was kind of similar to Chanel. I had been following the organization for like some time now because I was just looking for like an organization that was like, where are the like the specific like black socialist types, you know what I'm saying, or black anarchist types, you know what I'm saying? I was looking for that for a while. Then I found out about BSA and I was like, oh shit, I started following them. They were dropping hella gems. I was learning so, so much, retweeting them like fucking crazy. Then Z, our national coordinator, hits me up on Twitter. He was like, yo, you you down to become a member or what? And I was like, <laughs> at first I was nervous about it because I've never like stepped into, you know, I, I was just doing shit like, you know, just running my mouth online about stuff. Um, but at first I was, you know, a little bit nervous. And then once I got into it, I was like, yo, this is 
this is definitely this is definitely worth it. This is definitely something that has so much potential. And I'm just glad that we're all, you know, a part of this and able to contribute in this way with 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 this podcast. All right, y'all, let's uh, let's get to the news. Um, so first, I wanted to touch on uh, the Facebook, the the whole insanity that's going on with Facebook. And where to begin? There's so much going on with Facebook. Yeah, it's it's nuts. I mean, it, essentially, this story is going to boil down to Facebook is just like an accessory and an arm to like right wing extremism and fascism. <clears throat> and so, essentially, the employees have been pushed, have, have been uh, pissed off with, and have been pushing back on their uh, CEO uh, Mark Zuckerberg for like months now over the way the company has repeatedly failed to handle uh, far-right extremism and QAnon conspiracy theory uh, that has been allowed to perforate on the uh, on the website. Uh, Zuckerberg was confronted by his workers during a company-wide online meeting. Uh, Facebook employees alerted that some of their fellow employees have been, you know, expressing sympathy with cops after the protests and the riots in Kenosha over the shooting of, of Jacob Blake. So, you know, you got a couple of uh, Facebook employees who are like, you know, Blue Lives Matter type assholes. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it was reported by The Verge that a Facebook group called the Kenosha Guard, which issued a call to arms, remained active, even though it was reported twice <laughs> before the murders committed by Rittenhouse. So the mutiny at Facebook basically started in May when Facebook moderators failed to take action on a post coming from President Trump that was promoting violence, as he does, as an acceptable tactic to use against those protesting over the murder of George Floyd, over Mr. Floyd. One senior engineer for Facebook made a workplace post of compiled evidence that revealed that Facebook favors right-wing accounts by helping them to get rid of fact checks and intervening on misinformation strikes from their content. So essentially what was happening, yeah. So essentially what was happening is that normally with Facebook's policy, that this is essentially a violation of their own company policy because if someone wants to dispute a fact check um, issue, they have to like, they have to send that disputation to uh, you know, the moderators, moderators and stuff like that. And they have to like check everything out and approve it. Well, essentially that that's not happening when it comes to accounts like Turning Points USA, Breitbart, fucking Diamond and Silk content. Like it, it's it, they're they're just intervening with getting rid of those information strikes. So essentially this employee, that senior engineer, he was re- they removed his post, they limited his access to internal information and subsequently they fired him. Um other Facebook employees have reported the same issues and were also punished for doing so. Now, what's interesting is that the company's vice president of global public policy, Joel Kaplan, who oversees the the enforcement, he's a right-winger who served in George Bush's administration and supported Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination. And an employee found that Kaplan himself directly intervened by changing the um Escalation status on a on a Charlie Kirk post Facebook. Now, we juxtapose that with the fact that Facebook has also recently banned and silenced a number of anarchist and anti-fascist groups. Oh yeah, uh, accounts. PM Press. They're taking it down. <laughs> yeah, I mean PM Press. It's going down. Crime thing. John Brown Gun Club. Redneck Revolt. 
Um, and essentially what they've done, and there's a good article in, in Vice about this. Well, essentially what they've been doing is drawing a false equivalence between anti-fascist formations and right-wing groups. Which is why they're not doing anything to stop the right-wing groups from spreading their message. But not at all. They're doing everything they can to stop anarchist groups to the point of purging even personal accounts of people like uh, MC Soul or whatever they want to do. Yeah, I mean it's 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 insanity. I mean, a great podcast on this is a uh, Minion Death Cult, where they're literally on Facebook and in these insane right wing Facebook groups, and you just have just like everyday psychopaths, just you know, ruminating on murdering the left and and all sorts of sick shit. You know, it's all over Facebook. The QAnon groups are all over Facebook, and as we you know, you know, QAnon is gaining actual. Uh, 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 political power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 crazy. I'm curious what Chanel's take is on the influence of Facebook and how it's been. You know, especially given now how they're allowing like essentially misinformation and information from very fascistic forces to proliferate on the site, while also not engaging with anything that's counter to that. Like it's not allowing other sources of news from places like you said, like Crime Think or It's Going Down to continue to be published on the website. Um, Chanel, what are your thoughts given that, you know, especially like with the Black community are a lot of our elders, um, they get a lot of their information from sources like Facebook. What what are some of the dangers that you see emerging from this precedent that's being set? Well, I think the dangers um, are, the dangers are there already. Right. Like when we have. We don't have anyone at the table, you know, and where the decisions are being made about these sorts of things, then, you know, how can we expect it to roll out well? Right. So. And this is so beyond having bringing in a diversity and inclusion consultant, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. shit needs to get real black and real brown in you know, these uh, companies for there to be real impact. Uh, So that's one thing in terms of how people receive information and what they take in and how they digest it. I mean, that that will always be a battle, you know, to educate ourselves, to to, to properly educate other people. Um, and, And we have an expectation on Facebook to give a fuck, right? More than a few fucks. And it's disheartening to see how, you know, it's just yet another tool to oppress. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. very clearly so as creators and the folks who are in the, the highest, you know, uh, echelons of the the board or whatever. What was that guy's position? You said who's a, a far right winger? He's a vice president of global public uh, policy for Facebook. Exactly. So if he's the vice president of, you know, the global policy, like he's setting the standard for Facebook and how it handles information globally. And he sounds like someone who, like you said, supports groups like Turning Point USA and shit because they're allowing that to continue. And, you know, we all know they they push false narratives regarding race and science, all those different things. Like they, they really are trying to skew history. And, you know, anything they can to back the narrative that they're trying to set about what the U.S. and its allies 
and you know its enemies, how they all position themselves uh, globally, and you know what positions different ethnic groups, especially those that are most marginalized, you know how they operate in society and what position they should remain in. Absolutely, Ab- absolutely. Um, speaking speaking of oppression, uh, let's let's get to some of this stuff out that's that's going on with. Um, uh, Kenosha and in Portland. So, uh, uh, recently in, in Portland, um, a, uh, anti-fascist, um, in the community, uh, who apparently was doing security in the community by the name of, uh, Mike, Michael Rowanall, hopefully I'm saying his name correctly, uh, was essentially murdered, uh, was, was killed by federal, uh, federal agents uh, a few days ago. Um, in, in response to the fact that he, um, killed a, uh, fascist, um, I believe his name was, his last name was Danielson, uh, who was a member of Patriot Prayer. He was shot, uh, Glenn, I think you confirmed this. He was shot, what, 40, 30 to 40 times. Um, apparently he did have a firearm arm on him, but according to the latest reporting that we're seeing, he, um, he didn't draw. Um, so this was just blatant state sanctioned execution this is essentially mm-hmm. what this is um now we ju- oh yeah 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 uh, now we juxtapose that to what happened with a actual libertarian fascist uh kyle rittenhouse who you know the 17 year old who uh quote-unquote militia member who uh killed two people rosenbaum and and hubber um Recently, he did not uh, show up for his extradition hearing last Friday, and it has been moved to the 25th of this month. Uh, for those who don't know, Rittenhouse has five, has six charges. He's been charged with five felonies and one misdemeanor, one misdemeanor for possessing a weapon while being underage. 17, I think in Wisconsin, you have to be at least 18 to carry a weapon. He's facing like three homicide charges, two recklessly in two charges of recklessly endangering safety. Um, it's just amazing, uh, right? Um, you know, federal agents being dispatched for this dude who killed a fascist, um, who killed a member of an organization of the people who are members of organizations that can be linked to actual murders. There's no anti-fascist group that can that has actual bodies on them. That's that. There's just that's just not real. That's just not a thing, right? To add to the point that you're making about this situation, it's very important to note too that upon the act being performed by those federal agents, we had the Attorney General Barr. Uh, he put out a statement that basically applauded the federal agents for responding in kind. Uh, you know, for responding in that in that nature. Right. You know, his statement was basically saying that this is how we're planning to build out justice. There is no escaping. If you try to escape, you will meet the judge, jury, and executioner in the dirt. And I think that it's, you know, that in conjunction with the fact that when this Patriot Prayer member was killed, which, you know, anyone who knows Patriot Prayer, you know that they're a hop, skip, and a jump away from Adam Waffen or some group of that nature. Right. You know, Trump was a... Uh, saying rest in peace to their members. And then upon the state sanctioned murder of Michael Ryan, how you say it, upon his, his murder, Trump also affirmed the federal agents for performing a job well done. So, you know, with that being the tone that's being set from this administration, which is no surprise, you know, we know exactly what, what kind of, you know, what, what is, what's been from the jump. 2016 prior to 2012, back when he was hiring Obamas and shit like that to fucking... <laughs> that he could fire, you know, um, just to feel good yeah. about it. So, 
Uh, we, we already knew what the, the situation was with regards to their nationalistic stance and their deep-seated, you know, beliefs in white supremacy. But the point is that, you know, with everything that's going on with the crisis, everything that's going on with the uprisings, the crisis being both that economic and the, the pandemic, it's, it's very clear that there is a, a grab for power being made from multiple fronts. And the one that's being situated from this administration is clearly benched in a historic precedent in fascism. And, you know, as often with, with fascism, it, it targets the most marginalized. And this being one of the most white supremacist nations on the planet, if not the most white supremacist nation on the planet, is from here for folks that look like us, unless we really stand up and do something about it in the here and now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just coupled with the fact that Trump has recently, he recently visited Kenosha, despite being advised not to by the mayor of Kenosha and the governor of Wisconsin, in order to show support to local police and National Guard there. He did, of course, visit Jacob Blake and his family because he doesn't give a fuck about black people, really. Well, yeah. So apparently he only met with the pastors of Jacob Blake's mother, which I want to I want to be merciful on the pastors and not call them like, you know, kind of coonish for that. But I'm, you know, you meeting with fashion dictators, you're coon. Yeah, it's me. But I mean, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe they have their reasons. Maybe they're trying to <laughs> stop him from doing something unheard of. But yeah. Well, from the reporting, it was just like, you know, they wanted to make sure that there were folks at the table, kind of similar to what uh, Chanel just just referenced, um, mm-hmm. just said. And of course, he, to paraphrase what he said, he basically claimed that the protests were like an act of domestic terrorism, which is fucking nonsense when you literally had a 17 year old libertarian fascist kill two people. Ugh. And so the president, he's pledged to give over one million in federal support to local law enforcement, of course. Four million to small businesses, of course, because small businesses essentially. The way that they function in America under capitalism is that they just run cover for large corporations. That's an episode for That's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother thing. And 42 million for public safety. And we know what he means by public safety. And then you couple that with the fact that Trump has recently tried to get rid of critical race theory or any sort of anti-racism education in, in all sectors of, of government. Uh, Chanel, could you comment on that? Like, what impact do you think that'll really have? Like, what worse what what more detrimental impact do you think that that will have with just getting rid of any sort, even like bad anti-racism, anti-prejudice training? What, what do you think is going to come of this? What will come of the anti-racism training? Well, he's getting rid of any sort of like critical race theory training, any sort of like anti-racism training or education on racism out of, frankly, all sectors of, of government, essentially. What do you think could be the blowback from that? Like what detrimental effect would, do you think it would have? I mean, it sounds like a strengthening of the old guard to me, you know, like. Yeah. If, I could, if I could have a mild interjection on that, I think it's also important to take a glance at how Trump responded to that when he tweeted it. He tweeted an article from Breitbart. And when he ret- when he tweeted that article, he said something in the, the vein of like, he called it a sickness. It's, yeah, yeah. He called it a sickness, having any kind of anti-racism training. And he used very inflammatory language to the point where I think at the end of his statement, he said something about how we need to point out and, you know, like basically identify the elements that constitute critical race theory. And like all of those elements need to be extinguished. But, you know, that's... yeah. Very, very fiery language, if you will. Yeah. I mean, we know who he's pandering to. Mm-hmm. And it is very dangerous. 
the true illness is the upholding of beliefs that are just false. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's what we call a delusion. <laughs> Absolutely. So that would be horrific. It would be horrible. It'd be a thousand slaps in the face to folks who have been putting in the work to see these changes in the workplace and in in organizations and the structures. Like, you know, we talk about getting at things, you know, and we have to do so within the systems that exist. So if we're furthering the whitewashing of the system and not even to say whitewashing, but just the firming up of oppression, like where is that going to take us? It's it's definitely won't be in a good direction. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Just to circle back to the points that were being made by this administration, by the president himself, they made a very clear distinction to say that all of these sessions of anti-racism need to be eliminated because they are full of, quote, anti-American propaganda. So, like you said, they're, they're dropping the veil and making it very clear that this country was never made with the intention of servicing all the people, you know, of uh, being in support of all the people that inhabit it. It was made very intentionally to serve as one class and one breed of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're going to be switching over now from from news to our extended just uh, conversation on a specific topic that we wanted to talk about for a bit, uh, which is uh, individualism or hyper individualism in our culture right now and the way it has affected, frankly, all sectors of our society. The main reason why we wanted to talk about it is because of the pandemic and the way people have been behaving in certain areas of, of our country. If I could add to that, too, if you don't mind, I would also say that we should pay attention to how the government we live in, the U.S., and the unique form of capitalism that is housed in the U.S. has also reinforced the notion that your response to this pandemic is heavily predicated on your individualized response to it. But go on. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Chanel, did you want to lead this conversation off first with your thoughts on everything regarding just the hyper-individualistic attitudes of our society and how it's just fucking us over in so many ways and just causing so much turmoil? What's your take on that, Chanel? I think that we are fed a lot of bullshit. (laughs) Okay. Um. (laughs) Agree. (laughs) I think that Because when I think about the individualism, I immediately go to grade school, you know, and Mm. learning the the shit and truly being indoctrinated into this for years, you know. So when we talk about even to go back to the earlier point about the information coming out on Facebook and people's susceptibility to lies, we really have to look at what we've been subject to for years on end in terms of how we look at things how we interpret them, the conclusions that seem, you know, most logical to us in any given space and time. Like it's a lot to expect folks to be able to right off the bat discern and interpret things in the best way. I want to say properly, but you know, of course, truth is relative, right? But when the aim is helping myself, helping others and seeing how helping others and contributing to the collective helps me. That's a whole different ball game. But if it's just about help myself and only those who look like me, then yeah, we're going to have a lot of ramifications from that that aren't going to be pleasant for a whole lot of people. I like to shake things up a bit in a sense of getting us away from that individualistic thinking, but it's freaking hard. 
And we're still in this system. I think part of what, you know, BSA is even facing and the challenge to countering capitalism, the challenge to countering these age old constructs of how things should be. I don't want to say age old, but, you know, fostered intentionally and deliberately. Like there's a lot of us of the more melanated hue who cannot see the strategy that is waged <laughs> against us. The problem with the individualistic society, it does run counter, I think, to the hard wiring in in humans. And it takes a lot to get us to be in that space and for it to be well ingrained. And that's what we're getting in our school systems and other structures and things in our society that we have to engage with. But a lot of people just don't think that way. Their lines aren't so straight. They're more circular. Things aren't so rigid. They're more fluid. There's a lot that comes under the umbrella of that individualism that we could break down. But it's it's absolutely not the way forward. Not at this rate. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely agree with you on that. If I will, I would say that to that point you made about it being not hardwired, actually working counter to um, how humans are hardwired. I think that it's, you know... I think that's why we have such a strong system of reinforcement. Like you said, you know, from grade school, shit before grade school, you know, in just the the household, you're seeing it, you know, you're seeing those structures of individualism get reproduced and replicated uh, as a, you know, as a young, young child from birth, you know, you see the selfishness and, you know, the, the different ways of being that typically run counter to how people, you know, normally are like, when you're young, a lot of times you're more into being altruistic. You're more into sharing. And, you know, like if you have a snack, a young child is more likely to share that snack with their, their peers or even their, you know, their parents or something like that. Like sharing and like uh, being collective in the sense of like, you know, helping each other when we're down or when we're having a hard time. I think it's a very natural thing for us because we, you know, we understand the need to foster those kind of connections, those kinds of relationships. Um, you know, we're social beings, as they always say. And, you know, even, even you know, down to the animal kingdom, uh, you know, other species and stuff, you'll see that there are these degrees of cooperation that occur across different species. You know, like you have one group of animals helping another group of animals and it doesn't actually even directly have any, it doesn't have any reproduction benefits. It doesn't have any, doesn't even create like a community of like defense amongst different species. It's just a certain degree of goodwill that comes about as cognition is formed. I feel you can see it, you know, like you'll see like if a crow, if a crow is injured and like has a, a damaged wing or something like that, like other crows will come around and, you know, like, tend to that crow and help it with food and stuff until it's capable of taking care of itself. Hell, if a, if a young crow is separated from its its um, its parents, uh, other groups of crows will, you know, adopt that crow and bring it into their, uh, you know, their groups. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting to me that, like, you know, we have so many different examples of how people and other species, like I said, down to simpler forms of cognition, uh, they all collectivize in a lot of different ways, which helps them to to help with survivability, but also, you know, outside of the realm of just, you know, um, increasing their chances of survival. Sometimes it's just a natural state to be a, more of an altruistic being, you know, 
And I think that, uh, like Chanel was saying, the whole point of it being counter to how we engage, you know, that's why we have these rigid forms of indoctrination and propaganda that have been, you know, perpetuated and reproduced and reinforced over, you know, hundreds of years. The confines of slavery to the false uh, freedoms of neoliberalism. We see all these different elements that have come together to really try to repackage and repurpose different forms of oppression to keep people from realizing, well, I'll say people because the systems are really oppressing people, despite the effects they have on the greater ecology. But these, you know, these systems have been created and enhanced in this way, specifically to keep us from realizing our ability to collectivize and have stronger community and stronger abilities to take care of one another if we were to get away from that individualistic thinking. Absolutely. Definitely. Those those are those are great points. Uh that mutual aid, that mutual aid, it's built in, man. It's built in. Um yeah, I, th- I think for me what what just kills me about the individualism, like, you know, with individually it's just it's just such an odd philosophy and principle to build a a society on you know what i'm saying like a society needs it's inherently collective it it needs cooperation and cooperation you know what i'm saying Mm-hmm. In order to function, uh, people are going to have to rely on one another. That's just what it is. I mean, that that's what production is. You need people laboring and creating things that, uh, you know, necessities and upholding life systems in a variety of ways. People to make food, to to keep the energy grids on, to keep the heat on. You know what I'm saying? It's all one gigantic collaborative uh, uh, process. So to 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 for that to be a founding principle of America of of the individual, it's just such an odd philosophy to build a society on. And and I understand the sort of historical context that that led to that. You know what I'm saying? Because these are these are you know quote unquote the founding fathers. But like essentially the European colonists who were, who came to to this country, they were they were fleeing a um a political and social situation that was so extremely hierarchical in Europe. You know what I'm saying? With the monarchy and such. I mean, it was, it was, it was horrendous when you read about what, you know, European life was like places like England pre-industrial revolution. I mean, it was insanely Mm -hmm. hierarchical all over the place in, 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 in their workplaces, in, in politics, in the, of course, the church and the clergy, clergy, so I understand why when they, you know, ascend, you know, colonize this, this, this nation and, and uh, you know, and committed <laughs> genocides, you know, one of the principles that they're going to found this thing on is like, you know what, everyone for themselves, like everybody is their own thing. You know what I'm saying? No kings, no none of that. You know what I'm saying? And in a way that's kind of anarchic in its own son mm-hmm. way, you know what I'm saying? And really all mm-hmm. of life is is kind of anarchistic in a particular way. So I understand why that background of why they would set it up that way, but it's just gone to an extreme. And of course, Chanel will be better to speak on this, but it's that sort of concept. For me, it's, it's recognizing the difference between individuation versus individualism, which is like individuation is a way of you understanding that you are your own person and you have your own identity and your own beliefs and stuff like that separate from the clan or the tribe or the family or the society or the people group that you are descended from that you come from 
You know what I'm saying? You are your mm-hmm. own thing versus individualism. Individuation is healthy. You need that to to develop, you know, properly to have a real sense of self, like for real. Whereas mm-hmm. individualism, where it's just like you push it to these fucking like this. That's what germinates shit like quote unquote libertarianism. Of course, they're not real. We know what real libertarians are. You know that that's Bakunin, that's Lorenzo Irvin. Those are real libertarians. Well, you know we're talking about proprietarians, right? Proprietarians are right. The right wing capitalists. Not well, I mean, just to speak to that very briefly, if I'm not mistaken, I mean libertarian was purposely captured by the capitalist class. The terminology. To obfuscate the original intent behind the word, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you have that. You have hyper, insane hyper individualism coming from right wing libertarians, and then to the furthest extent of the fucking Randians. I don't even, I don't even know if there are still like and Rand followers. You know what I'm saying? Like Mark Cuban before he came to his fucking senses was a Randian as well. But that's just like extreme you know what i'm saying you have your margaret thatcher's you know margaret thatcher where she's like you know we don't live in a society <laughs> you know what i'm saying shit like that like like it's a spit in the face of of mr is it's spitting in mr rogers face you know no we're we're not it's not we're not a neighborhood there are no neighbors you know what i'm saying some shit you know what i'm saying some shit like that that's so that's so helpful to understand how we are connected to one another. And it's just gotten us to this insane point. And, and now it generates, look at what it generates. It generates a Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Where you have these individuals who believe it's it's more important to, and this is, you know, all over capitalist ideology and all this other shit, where it's, you know, property that people freak out more about people having their windows busted out than, you know, a black man getting his torso and his neck kneeled on and murdered. It's just a horrible, immoral and unethical philosophy to build a functioning society on something that's supposed to be a democracy, you know? So those are my thoughts on that. I just did a little quick glance of some stuff. The origins of libertarian thought come from some of the earliest anarchist thinkers, such as, you know, Joseph D. Jacques, Pierre-Joseph Prodhomme, Peter Kropotkin, uh, Emma Goldman, yeah. Enrico Malatesta. Like, you know, they pre- it all predates the work of the early American libertarian thinkers, Murray Rothbard and Millard Friedman. You know, they were the ones who co-opted that language right. and took the term libertarian so that they can actually purposely construe it to have a conservative meaning behind it, to get away from the origins formed by those anarchist thinkers. Absolutely. You know, yeah, Murray Rothbard and, and, and uh, Milton Friedman, you know, one of the architects of essentially the, the neoliberal project, which is just a fucking laid waste to the world and to, to society. You know, neoliberalism, this sort of utopian fantastical ideology that the institutions and and organizations and systems of the world operate better when they bow to the whim of the market. It's like what Mark Fisher, the great theorist, uh, Mark Fisher, may he rest in love, what he talked about in his book, that everybody in a mama, you know, references and talks about, you know, capitalist realism. Mm -hmm. You know, every, every institution in society should have what he calls a business ontology. Right. Ontology is essentially the it's essentially a the the philosophy of being the philosophy of existence. So essentially what he means by business ontology is that everything should be run like a business. You know, exactly. And that's kind of like when Trump first came 
into power, into office, that's why some people were supporting him because, oh, well, he's a businessman. You know what I'm saying? So in that, there's this presupposition that the way we just eat the ass of business people is absurd. I mean, you know, we've been programmed to kiss the ass of businessmen and wealthy people and, you know, to 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 kiss the ass of, you know, Silicon Valley thought leaders and and, and, and property owners. types and property owners. So that that's already primed in us. That's just Gramsci called it the uh, the cultural hegemony at work. Right. The way we're programmed. I mean, even think, even in the hood, like think, think about how niggas revered the niggas who. Managed to own a house or managed to own a business or some property or some shit, you know? Right. Like, yeah. everybody look at them as like, oh, that, that, they must be the people to aspire to. They, like, they're doing, they're making the right moves. They're doing the right shit. And then lo and behold, you know, more often than not, you find out the line, yeah, they got there by once again, fucking exploiting their own people, taking advantage of people, getting people to do cheap contract work. Exactly. And often, like, not paying people, you know, just fucking completely ghosting people when it comes time to come up with that check. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to see the same exploitation. You know what I'm saying? And we're already primed for that. You know, so this assumption that, oh, it's good that a businessman is going to be running the country, you know, assumes also, you know, tacitly assuming that everything in society should be run like a business, which is insane. I mean, which is totally <laughs> insane. When you look at the look at how businesses actually operate and actually function, look at the failure rates of startups. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the I, that, it's, it's it's absurdity. And again, it's that culture hegemony. We've been programmed with this shit, and that was one of the justifications for his for his presidency. And definitely, I mean, you can see that that sort of thought replicated in its own ways in the black community. You know what I'm saying? Or in any community of color. And it's I feel like it's it's even worse for us to a certain degree because we're used to like not having shit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So no matter how horrible or exploitative the person who has shit is, and no matter how destructive and harmful the things that they have done to get what they have are, we're always going to support it. You know, because they got it. it. It's just sad. It's just a cruel predicament that we're in. But yeah, it's 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 total. It's total insanity. It's total insanity. So now we are going to transition over to uh, Dr. Chanel's segment, uh, "Under Pressure Self," and uh, we wanted to connect um, her segment to what we just discussed: um, individualism. And so. Um, Dr. Chanel, this is your this is your whole this this is all you. Um, how can we how can we deal with um, what what techniques what methods can we deal with living under hyper individualism? What does it look like for us to be connected to others and and dependent and reliant upon others and interconnected with others and you know what benefits does that have? What drawbacks does that have? Just talk to us more about that and, and how we can, you know, what techniques, what mental techniques, what self-care, what, 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 what can we do, Doc? What can we do? <laughs> to help a brother out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look, it's, um, we have to start where we, where we left off in the conversation with the individual, right? We have to start there and, and truly seeing and understanding our predicament. You know, this podcast is is called A Thousand Cuts. You know, um, we need 
more than a few ways to address these wounds, these cuts that we take every damn day, right? Um, The individualistic frame has put us in quite a pickle, but we have to start there in terms of rebuilding and building up ourselves, you know, before we can, can really convey the proper messaging to those around us and to our children, to generations after us. So, you know, part of my work and focus is, is to help with that effort. And there, there are tons of approaches, turn, tons of ways to, to, to be helped, you know, and it, it doesn't have to, to always involve psychotherapy, but I think psychotherapy is key in order to deal with this aspect of unoppressing ourselves, right? To, to get at the years of indoctrination of lies and theories and things that have placed black people, um, you know, perpetually in this other category. So the unoppress yourself segment in this podcast is it, what, am, what are we saying there? We need to be able to recognize the problem. You know, what is oppression? How does that look? How does that feel? How are my relationships impacted by it? How am I impacted by it? And we only have to look so far as our daily experience in terms of our emotional stuff, our, our habits and the behaviors that plague us, that ail us, the problems that we have in our families and our communities. We've got to be able to name our pain differently, engage with it in ways that are going to actually help us and not perpetuate the oppression. Because, see, it's not just what is coming from without, but we're often cutting ourselves metaphorically from within because we've internalized the oppressive attitudes and ways of being. So that harsh inner critic, you know, that's always condemning us and chastising us and, you know, declaring our doom. Where does that come from? Where does that tone, where does that voice come from? We've got to be able to, to see that stuff within ourselves to, um, to be able to truly make change because we can't change what we can't see. So, you know, bringing awareness to how individualism affects us on a day-to-day level is highly important. <laughs> it's highly important. And, and we know it and we see it, but we're not often able to take the time to process it and deal with it. So, you know, this segment, um, we, we want to do a little bit of that uh, best we can. And one, you know, looking at what is oppression? what what is this thing that we're talking about? We're talking about prolonged, cruel treatment. We're talking about being under immense pressure from different sources, you know, and we're we're not just talking about the oppression of Blackness and what comes with that. We're talking about sexism, ageism, classism. When we think of the network that we're up against, honey. <laughs> we best get some internal skills. 
Yeah, man, yes. That's some internal skills. So I I I think we've got to start with really naming things, with really accepting that we are being cut, that it hurts, and that that pain has to be responded to. And it's not just about quick fix, but it's about, um, you know, because, I mean, we do a lot of things in response to our pain, but it doesn't mean that they're helpful. doesn't mean that moving us forward in a direction that we want to go in. So I'm talking about, you know, healthy responding to pain. And we have a lot of ancient traditions and practices that don't get taught and communicated through the different systems that we're involved in. So often it's a matter of getting back to what was here before Western civilization said that this was this and that was that. You know, what comes from our roots, how do we engage with the land is often even a reflection of how we engage with ourselves. You know, we're so cut off from that, um, which gives us a sense of of nurturance and tending to that we can apply to other life domains. We can transfer those skills, Uh, something that is outside of us. It can model how we can respond to things um within so yeah recognizing the pain that individualism causes and tending to those wounds and knowing that the tending to those wounds is not always an outward focus but definitely has to involve some restructuring of some stuff so that we can we can really um live how we desire now on on that note chanel i just have to ask a question now what 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 are some of the frameworks in which you propose when contesting with folks who, uh, for lack of a better term, they got they got theirs and they ain't really worried about nobody else at that point? You know, people who got their back. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times, you know, and especially like from my experience with some folks in the black community, when they've engaged with that individualism and reproducing those types of FOs has reinforce their ideas of how people should function because they actually got some benefit from it, despite, you know, they could look at the conditions of, you know, the neighborhood they came from and see that not everybody can get that bag. They just happen to, you know, get lucky. Yeah. How, how do we challenge folks like that who feel like, you know, they've pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and they're the modern day Booker T. Washingtons who don't have to be concerned with the other folks who are surrounding them who you know, aren't able to do so no matter how much hard work they put in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, validate their perspective, right? It's their view from where they stand and or sit and look back. That is their view. Fine. No one needs, we, like, we're not going to get anywhere by trying to tear that down. What we can move the conversation toward is the fact that we can try to engage people in conversation about where they started, not just from the standpoint of the task that they engaged in, but also from the standpoint of the emotional journey that is involved in trying to break out of something and into a new space and time. Like, I think some of those conversations, we stay too intellectual, you know? And getting people to really describe their experience in a different way can help them touch base, we hope, you know, with the heart of it. But that is such a thing, you know, after you 
get to certain levels and phases, we often can lose touch with what it's like in the, in the prior ones, you know? So I think in order to, to have an actual discussion and conversation, you know, it takes some willingness to, to try to touch base with those realities um, as they existed when the person was in their beginning, not just looking back and trying to give some concise, non-emotional directives that shit what is that gonna do i can put that on my refrigerator thank you (laughs) (laughs) but you know help me understand what's in between those lines help me understand trials and the challenges and the ways you had to get yourself together to move forward when things you know when things were hitting you no doubt and there are some people who are, you know, who have made great progress in the systems that be, who, you know, keep cultivating that awareness within themselves of, you know, where they come from. It's not just where you come from in terms of the fucking geographical locations, where you come from emotionally, your evolution in thought and in being and being able to articulate that to folks. And we as, as the other side in this, I'm sticking with this kind of economic aspect. We've got to be able to also, you know, know that just because somebody can give us a quick list of tips, that there's more to it than that. And sometimes people get upset when you try to give them the more because they just want the, the, the quick tip. And, you know, that'll take me back to our whole issue with it, with the type of reasoning that's promoted and taught and how that can impact us when we get to. Uh, some critical decision points, you know, and our love with comfort, you know, confirmation bias is a thing. We seek to get from around us that which also like match what we already believe or think about a thing. So like that has to be countered. It's a lot. But, you know, this conversation, Glenn, reminds me also of what's happening now in the workplace in the sense of employees, black employees specifically voicing their concerns and maybe having folks whom they're delivering those concerns to kind of have this role of like, I got to where I got, you know, you just need to deal with it. You need to, you know, come along to get along and everything's going to be all right. You know, there is a, a desire, you know, the grassroots boots on the ground desire for something better than that, better than, you know, let me get mine, uh, you know. I can I maybe give you a pointer or two on how to get yours. But, you know, when we know what folks are countering, the systems that are against them, it is not just you as in, in your single solitary energy that has made a way forward. It's, it's everyone doing what they can, however they can to advance the cause of liberation. So, you know, we can take those conversations in in the different uh, spaces, but often it takes some finessing <laughs> the defense mechanisms we just tend to have, you know? So, um, and how do you finesse that? Just in how we use language to start a, a conversation. So I tend to try and see, okay, where's a, a soft entry point um, so that I'm not immediately encountering so much defensiveness. But then again, you know, after that, it depends on the dialogue that ensues and, and where people are and their willingness to engage thoughtfully. Wow. Wow, that's 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 great. That's great. I knew that was gonna be a gym segment, y'all. I knew that was gonna be a gym segment. Um yeah, that was that was great. That was great. And I and I love what you said about connecting to the land 
that correlates to another perspective that we're coming from as on this podcast and as an organization, that of social ecology, right? This our connection to the land and essentially social ecology, which is a form of study and research that comes from great anarchist theorist Murray Bookchin, where he talks about how the relationships that us as human beings have between one another, we replicate that relationship with uh, nature and the land. So if we are dominating and oppressing one another, we're going to dominate land and in the environment. And we're seeing that, of course, uh, currently with just the here but still coming environmental collapse. Uh, recently, I just saw that there was a report that the EPA is loosing its regulations and so it, on lead. And, and so there's a possibility that lead and mercury could enter into water systems and such, you know. And that's just connected to individualism, too, where it's just like, fuck everything else, fuck everybody else. I'm just out to get mine, you know. The, the, the compartmentalizing of profits. Absolutely. That as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Chanel, thank you so much for that. And now we're going to switch over to our final segment, which is um, the Black Joy segment. And in this segment, essentially, we just talk about and bring up different things, different, you know, shows or books or whatever it may be that is, um, you know, bringing us joy right now. And just a really in this really tough season and really tough time that, that we're in this dystopian year of 2020. So Chanel or Glenn, if if you want to start that off, what are y'all engaging with or what are you thinking about that's just that's been inspiring you, giving you hope, giving you positivity? Yeah, Chanel, you can you can uh, start that off if you would like. OK, what is bringing me joy and positivity in this age? <laughs> being with loved ones, being able to be with loved ones like. Let's just pause and slow it down. Being able to be with loved ones is a thing. So having the opportunity to do that is big. You know, the whole COVID situation and and the way we have to engage with one another for safety's sake, it makes it a challenge. So I am enjoying every moment that I can with those I know who love the fuck out of me. And it's very pleasurable and delightful. And that is bringing me an immense amount of joy. Right on. That's what's up. Love to hear stuff like that, you know, because that's, you know, some of the things that historically we've been able to at least draw some, you know, semblance of comfort and uh, warmth from being able to connect with our loved ones. And so that's that's actually really good to hear, Chanel. Thank you for that. Um, If I'll pick up the torch for me. Lately, um, what I've been enjoying, what's been bringing me some degree of joy in these moments, has been uh, engaging in the arts again. I've been writing again, uh, writing a graphic novel I'm trying to produce, just like a short, um, I guess I'll call it a comic, because it's not going to be a whole novel, but uh, just a little short comedy getting back into the act of creating, making art. And I've been reading some really good comics. I recently got this one comic from a Black artist, I think he's an animator too. Uh, Freddy Carrasco. He's really good. He made a, a graphic novel that was published through Gleam, which is Bremen with Black bodies, people, you know, that look like us, um, engaged in these different science fiction uh, narratives, like three different narratives in it, short stories. Uh, again, it's called Gleam. It's by PO Studios, P E O W, uh, or at least they're publishing it. And it's by Freddy Carrasco. Uh, and it's just, it's just a joyful, 
like just re like it's it reminiscent of picking up the shonen jumps as a kid and scrolling through the one piece and you know dragon ball and shit like that it's just a, a great collection of uh stories from a black perspective and told through a science fiction lens is, is enjoyable i would highly advise it to anybody if you can get a copy because it, it I, I had to wait for the second printing to get my copy so Awesome. Yeah. For me, it's I have been just trying to watch things that just make me laugh, listen to different podcasts that makes me laugh. That's just always really good for my mental health to center me back, you know, and to get some joy really quickly. And so one of the things I've been watching is uh, one of my favorite YouTubers. He's called The Black Hokage. Hokage coming from the anime Naruto is one of the leaders of one of the villages in the show, but he's currently doing like a review of like each double XL freshman freestyle. And uh, it's hilarious because almost all the freestyles are bad. And he's just hilarious. And his takedowns of it are, are amazing of these horrible freestyles. Uh, they it just seem like they've been getting worse and worse over the years. And so I would definitely recommend checking that out, the Black Hokage and his double XL freshman freestyle reviews. He makes a lot of great criticisms and is just funny and energetic as he usually is. So I've been going back and watching those and just, just cringing at just some of like, just, just how horrible it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is going to be it for this, for this first episode. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to anyone who's decided to check us out and you thought the introductory episode was good and you've been supporting the organization. I want to say just, just thank you. Uh, this has been a great episode. This has been awesome. I am your host, Demetrius. Again, with my comrades, co-hosts, Glenn and Chanel, we will see you all on the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to this first episode of A Thousand Cuts. We are a BSA podcast. Y'all take care. Bye, y'all. Take it easy. Y'all take care now, you hear? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs>